Genesis chapter 6, verse number 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And Jehovah said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the, Lord is, the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and pitch it within and without with pitch. This is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, the height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make into the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee. We'll stop reading there. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd strengthen our faith, our ability to understand, our wisdom in applying your word. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts through the illustrations that we have before us tonight. Glorify yourself in us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As, as Christians, we have been taught by God's grace to put our faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Perhaps there was a time when we knew that Jesus' death meant salvation, but that knowledge had not yet been translated into genuine faith in Christ. We knew and even believed that Christ is the Savior, but we had not cast our all upon him. There had not been a, yet a, a total surrender to the Lord with a dependence only on him for salvation. But that was then. And today things are radically changed. We have given up every shred of personal works and self-righteousness. Our faith is in the Lord and it's as real as 
Jesus' own illustration about eating and drinking his flesh and his blood. It's genuine. It's real. Our faith has moved from the realm of the theological. It's moved from the realm of the intellectual into something very practical. Or to use another word, experiential. Of course, one of the factors in our total surrender to God's sovereign grace is that we had no alternative. It finally occurred to us, there's nothing else for me to do. I guess I better trust Christ. We don't think of it in that way, but essentially it boiled down to that. As I say, we had come to learn that there was nothing that we could contribute to our salvation. And once we reached that understanding, there was no alternative but to trust Christ as Lord and Savior. But then, following that surrender to simple, pure faith, we began to live a Christian life. Instead of instantly taking us to glory, the Lord has left us here to serve, to work for him, to bring him glory upon this earth and in front of the unbeliever. We learned of the Lord's great commission and we have tried to do our part in sending forth the word of God. We pray for the salvation of lost souls. We ask for the Lord's blessings and even for miraculous evidence of his presence in our lives so that we might be more fruitful and uh, helpful in this uh, ungodly place. Since the time of our salvation, we have learned that living the Christian life is something we must do in cooperation with the Lord. Any victories we have, they're the Lord's. Any failures we have, that's entirely our own. It takes our minds and our hearts to read the Word of God. And if we're too busy, we don't read the Bible. That's not on God, that's on us. The things of God are discerned through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But if we don't put forth our human effort, there will be no growth. There will be no understanding. We need to apply ourselves. Help me to understand this scripture. And if we're too tired when we begin to pray, we end up like the disciples in the garden. We're either falling asleep or our minds are wandering off to some other place. We have to focus. We are involved in this Christian life. The preacher spends a few hours preparing a message for a particular day, but sometimes he preaches it in the power of his own flesh, not in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a cooperation there. The ability to live the Christian life is entirely of God. Nevertheless, it is lived through these fleshly bodies of ours. Similarly, our faith, our faith in God, our faith Trusting him to accomplish his will in our lives, our faith can become as weak as our minds or our focus, our prayer lives. We pray for the healing of our sick friend, but sometimes our trust is more in the doctor who's treating our friend than it is in the Lord. And in fact, we even pray, Lord, bless that doctor as he treats my friend. Are we trusting the Lord? Yes, sort of. We beseech the Lord for the salvation of our daughter. 
But in the back of our mind, we're thinking, she has heard the pastor preach his heart out for years and not responded, so it's, it's pretty unlikely that she's going to be saved next Sunday. But Lord, save her. Is there faith there? Is it the right kind of faith? No, we haven't cast aside our faith in God, that he can heal and that he can save, but we're no longer trusting him with any real expectation of answers. What I'm hoping to do in this short series of lessons is to push our faith, to push my faith away from the theological into the more practical. Since I will be trying to learn these lessons with you, I may stutter and stammer and uh, not connect all the dots very well. So pray for me in this and I will pray for you. But if we both pray in expectant faith, we will prosper because it's the promise of God. Tonight, I would like to consider Noah as an example of a church planter, a missionary, if you like. Paul says in Hebrews 11, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became the heir became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. I know that we have studied this man and his faith as illustrations of salvation. And when we were looking at 1 Peter, we looked at Noah as someone saved by the ark which God prepared for him. I have no intention of doing those lessons because they are apt and they remain true and so on. But I would like you to lay those aside just for a few minutes as we look at Noah from a slightly different direction. Turn to Genesis. Oh, you already have. Uh, chapter 5. Excuse me. At chapter 6, we read through 5 through 18. I believe that the Lord Jesus brought Noah into the 21st century. The Lord Jesus brought Noah into our day and age when the Lord said, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. I believe we have the scriptural authority to look at Noah's world and make comparisons to our world today. And what do we see? Noah's world was a mess. And our world is just as messy. Maybe more so, maybe not. The earth was corrupt before God and filled with violence. Even our games are filled with violence. God was angry with the people of Noah's day, and God remains angry today. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created. And even though the manner of the destruction has been promised to change, nevertheless, the destruction is still on the books. It's still on the way. But Noah found grace 
in the eyes of the Lord. Which means that God graciously saved his soul. Did the Lord immediately transport that man to heaven the way he eventually did uh, Noah's grandfather uh, Enoch? No. Rather, God commissioned Noah to build an ark, to build a box. He was ordered to construct a saving station, if I can put it that way, making it available to any sinner who had the will to come. Uh, not very many came. In fact, no one came. But there it was. Yeah. There it was. I know that I'm stretching things a little bit, but uh, bear, bear with me. What if we look at the construction of the ark as the work of a missionary in a dying nation or a nation full of dying sinners? Didn't the Lord give to Noah a commission which somewhat parallels our own? Teach them salvation. Didn't God give to Noah blueprints telling him, this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. Not everyone has the authority to build a church of Christ. Not everyone has the authority to build a church for Christ. And there are things that a church is to believe, to be one of the churches of the Lord. Here's the pattern. It's laid out for us in the Word of God. For years, Noah and his sons went out falling and cutting trees, refining the waterproofing pitch, putting timbers together and driving those pins in to hold them in place, uh, fitly framing together an holy temple of the Lord out there in that wilderness. I have no doubt that the ark, while under construction for a couple of decades, no, no, more than that, uh, several, a century. I have no doubt that the ark became a pulpit for the preaching of the truth. Every Sabbath, the work probably stopped, and God's missionary led his tiny congregation in worship. And throughout the weeks, when someone came by saying, what do these feeble Jews, like Nehemiah, uh, Noah put his hammer down for a moment in order to hammer down the truth that judgment was coming and God demanded repentance of these people. I think that the, 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 the nose of that ark, which I can visualize for some reason or other, uh, had Noah standing at the front of it from time to time, preaching the gospel down to those people down below. It might be instructive and enjoyable to pursue that analogy, but that is not my primary purpose. I'd like to tie Noah into the subject that we began last Wednesday evening. Noah's faith in God was practical. It involved work, it involved trust, it involved, ultimately, the glory of God. Let's consider the practical faith of Noah, the church planter. 
The writer of the book of Hebrews highlighted Noah's faith because it was outstanding. It was considerable. First, God revealed to the man that the Lord had chosen to save him out of the millions of people on the earth. There was nothing in Noah which made him different from anyone else except for God's saving grace. And the first aspect of Noah's faith was to believe that God chose to save him. And eventually that God did save me. He believed that God had redeemed him. But again, that is akin to our saving faith. He had no other place to turn. But then, Noah put his faith on the line by building his church and sharing with his neighbors what God had revealed to him. He wasn't trying to isolate himself from the world. Nor was he stepping into some pulpit so far away that he was unreachable. But by choosing to apply God's word to his life, he was, in effect, stepping onto that pulpit. And he was doing that by faith, believing and preaching something totally absurd to the people of that generation. Made no sense whatever. Unheard of. By faith, he was risking his life. Because remember, we're told here a time or two that this was a violent society. And if Noah was pointing his finger at people, telling them to repent and they were a bunch of sinners, you could be quite... You might... You wouldn't be surprised to find a rock being hurled in his direction. And they might have had other weapons even more deadly than rocks in those days. But God was there to protect the man and protect his family. And Noah had faith to trust him in all of this. He didn't fear for his life when he went out into the woods looking for that perfect tamarack to bring home to the, uh, the ark. Well, it wasn't tamarack, but uh, uh, the wood for the construction. No one had ever seen the kind of rain that was going to fall on the earth during this flood. But Noah preached it by faith as if it was the truth. No one knew or had ever heard that there were fountains of water under the earth that would explode to the surface. But Noah had been told and he believed it. And his life was built around that fact. Judgment is coming. How did that go over with the neighbors? Do you suppose he was ever hit with a rotten egg? Rotten tomato? Or a rock thrown by a rotten sinner? He not only had faith to build his preaching station in the wilderness, but he had faith to move his family into one of the unfinished cabins on the on the interior. He had the firm practical faith to tell violent people around him what he was doing and what they ought to do. And not one responded positively. By faith, Noah stepped out of the shadows to witness to the world that judgment and death are 
imminent. He also told the world that he and his family would be safe inside this castle that God has designed. I won't tell you that he invited others to join him. God told him everybody was going to die. But in effect, in essence, by what he was doing, he was telling a message. He was sharing a message with those around him. Was Noah's situation much different to that of uh, the New Testament evangelists? In Acts 8.5, when Philip went down from Jerusalem to Samaria, yes, I know he was going north, but he was going down from the heights of Jerusalem into Samaria to preach the gospel and start churches, Philip went by faith to do that. He was trusting the Lord. I believe that he received directions from the Lord. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them, and the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake. The Lord opened the hearts of those people. I think Philip was there by the command of God, and he trusted the Lord for miracles, and the Lord gave those miracles. They gave heed to those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many that were possessed of them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. We know that Philip started churches in the city of Samaria and the, the area of Samaria because we read in the next chapter that there were churches there. And then by faith, Philip left Samaria to run down into the Gaza desert on an evangelistic mission. The only thing he had to go on was the apparent message from an angel of God. Get you down into the, uh, to Gaza. Philip was a man of practical faith. Not just the theological kind. When God said go, Philip said, oh, I'll go. And off he went. He arose and went, the scripture says. Missions and church planning takes faith. And the more faith and the more we surrender to the Lord through that faith, the greater the victories we will enjoy. What took Paul from the relative comfort, quote unquote, of Asia Minor? He grew up uh, on the south shore of Turkey. That was his home area. What took him from the comfort of Asia Minor to the Roman military city of Philippi? God spoke to his heart through a vision in which a man of Macedonia invited him saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. Next verse says, and after he had seen the vision, immediately... We endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. They went immediately, Paul and his crew. By faith, with practical faith in the direction and the blessing of God, Paul stepped out, risking his life once again for the sake of souls and for the establishing of another church of Christ. He demonstrated and lived his faith. It wasn't something in his head. It was in his hands and his feet. It was in his heart. So a church was planted in Philippi. 
And then there was one in Thessalonica. And there was another in Berea. Before they went further south down into Achaia, Greece. Why did the brethren move so quickly? Why did they go with such confidence from Troas to Philippi? Because they believed God. God said, go, let's go. Their faith in God gave them the confidence to risk themselves for God's blessings. The work of evangelistic missions and church planting is not something for the faint-hearted. For the man with the mere intellectual or theological faith in God. Successful missionaries go into their work trusting God for the results. Not themselves. He goes expecting to be blessed and protected. Even if that protection is in the midst of a Roman prison with the walls falling down around them. I'm safe. The Lord wants me here. He doesn't necessarily have an agenda. He doesn't necessarily have a detailed itinerary. I will spend one week in this community and I think we'll spend three over here. Just goes until the Lord says, stop or go somewhere else. And when we accompany that missionary, praying for him 10,000 miles away, we need to pray with the same kind of practical faith and expectation of the Lord's blessings. We need to be bold with God. Grabbing the Lord's promises and anticipating the Lord's fulfillment of those promises. And the more faith we and the missionary employ, the greater will be the victories of that or on that mission field. Now let me give you a couple more recent illustrations some of which you have heard bits and pieces. Daniel Marshall and his family had been zealously and unbiblically trying to evangelize the Mohawk Indians of New York. When the French and Indian War forced him to give up his plans, he moved south down to Opacon, Virginia, and there he was baptized. And there he was licensed to preach by a Baptist church. And there he resumed his preaching. He preached in faith, expecting God to honor his word. And God did honor his word. There were so many people being saved that some of the churches in uh, Pennsylvania and New Jersey began to wonder about the, the heretic down there that's seeing such great victories. So they sent a Baptist preacher, well-known fellow named Miller, down to investigate. Yes, his name was Miller. Uh, and Miller came away and was saying, well, I wish every Christian was like this Christian. There's nothing wrong with his faith. Meanwhile, Marshall's brother-in-law, Shubal Stearns, pastor of the Baptist church in Tolland, Connecticut, felt the call of God to go into the pioneer frontier. He left his church. It was left in good hands. Another pastor came in there, but Stearns took with him five other couples. 
moving southwest, where they met up with Daniel Marshall. They were related. And together, trusting God alone, they committed their lives and their wives to the Lord and eventually traveled down the Shenandoah Valley where they spotted a, a gap. They crossed over the Blue Ridge and entered the Piedmont country of Pennsylvania where they stopped to rest on the side of a small sandy creek. Here's the thing. Even though the Marshalls and the Stearns knew of people in North Carolina, even some Baptists in North Carolina, none of them lived near Sandy Creek. They knew of no one in the area. In fact, there were very few people in the area. Guilford County was uh, uh, just a handful of folk at that point in time. There are no mountains in that area. There are no rivers in that area. There are no lakes in that area. There was nothing to say, this is going to be a prosperous area someday. Nothing like that. The only notable feature on the primitive maps that they had at the time was that two roads intersected close by Sandy Creek. And today, those roads are hardly discernible on maps. Stearns and Marshall picked that site to settle and begin preaching the gospel totally by faith. They had no crowds to preach to. They said, the Lord wants us here. We trust the Lord. We're going to do something right here. And in faith, those few families erected some crude shelters for them to live in, and immediately they started building a meeting hall, a building to house the crowds that didn't yet exist. Those believers then formed themselves into a Baptist church with a membership of 16 souls. They didn't wait for the Lord to save a hundred before they organized. They didn't wait until crops were coming in and there's enough money to pay the preacher's salary and his two associates, Marshall and I forgot the other fellow's name. They didn't wait for anything. They were people of faith. And they expected the Lord to bless and to keep his promises. And as soon as the pulpit was in place, the people started singing the songs of Zion, and Shubal Stern started preaching Christ. And God did bless their faith. And travelers on their way further south stopped to hear the gospel. Some of them looked around and saw the same rolling hills and fertile soil that Judy and I saw back in September. And they said, we're going to stay here. We have a church here. Soon that church had 600 members. And Daniel uh, Marshall and the other preachers started uh, spreading the gospel throughout North Carolina, South Carolina, and eventually into Georgia. The victories won at Sandy Creek were won by faith. Practical, expectant, sacrificing faith. They were not victories based on persistence or oratory. 
or excitement or organization. As I say, they began with nothing but confidence in the Lord and God loved it and God blessed. It was the same kind of faith that Philip demonstrated in Samaria. It was the same kind of faith that Paul uh, taught us or showed us in Philippi. I know that Noah did not have the same degree of success as these others, but I believe it was the same kind of faith that Noah had. I believe that Noah was pleased with God's will because his faith was settled in the Lord. This is the faith we need to have today as we step into our responsibilities in carrying out the Great Commission. Let me give you another example of missionary work built on faith. I was debating whether or not to do this, but I, I shall. It'll take a few minutes. William Fettler was born in predominantly Lutheran Latvia on the Baltic Sea. He was born in 1883. His father was a Baptist, the only Baptist in the region. At the age of 15, William was born again. And when he was baptized, his father was pelted with rocks, and William remembers the blood dripping down his face and the big grin that Dad had at the same time. Outside of Riga, Latvia, William preached his first sermon, stuttering and stammering over simply, this is how the Lord saved me. He was 20 when the Lord called him into the ministry. And that was about the time that he began to learn to live by faith. Not only did he have a burden for the people of Latvia, but right next door was the huge... Russian Empire that was completely gospelless. Speaking only three languages at that time, Latvian, Russian, and German, he used an English-Russian dictionary to send a postcard to Spurgeon's College in London. It said only... I want to study to be a pastor. It must have taken him a couple of hours to figure out how to say that in English. Thomas Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon's son, immediately said, Tsarist Russia is knocking on our door. And he wrote back to William and said, Come, we want you here. He bought steerage Space, a steerage ticket. This is the cheapest possible way to travel on a ship. He paid just a few dollars to get a ticket to London, and he gave all of the rest of his savings to his mother and father. He had no idea how he was going to survive in London. No money, no job, no English language to help him get a job let alone to go to school. But he trusted God to meet his needs. And that is exactly what the Lord did. While in London, not only did William learn English and some Baptist doctrine, but he grew in the Lord. 
He experienced firsthand the revival that was going on in Wales, just to the west. He witnessed how the faith of a few believers was setting that country on fire. James A. Stewart, that I have quoted and put in the bulletin several times here recently, said of Fettler, It was in the Welsh revival that William came to a real definite experience of not only recognizing the Holy Spirit as a person, but knowing him in a deep, intimate, personal way. And then he added, He lived and breathed in the atmosphere of revival because he lived and breathed in the atmosphere of prayer meetings. Prayer meetings where there was genuine faith Genuine trust in God. And it just filled William's heart with desire and confidence to do great things for the Lord. Thomas Spurgeon had said, Tsarist Russia is knocking on our door. But Russia was closed to the gospel. There were no evangelicals in Russia at all. There were no Baptist missionaries in Russia at that time. But then, in 1905, under problems that were created by the destruction of the Russian fleet way over on the uh, uh, east coast of Russia, and riots that were taking place uh, throughout the western part of Russia, the Tsar signed a document granting limited freedom for religion. Churches had to be registered with the government, but there was the opportunity for some degree of peace. The faith of Thomas Spurgeon and William Fetler was being honored by God. Before Fetler left London, the Lord raised up a businessman, a real estate fella who had made a lot of money, a fellow named Charles Phillips, and he, hearing about what might take place in Latvia and Russia, said, I'm going to finance you. The man had no money, and now he has nearly unlimited resources. Because he said, I'm going to go for you, God. I'm going to represent you. I'm going to trust you. Everything about his ministry in Latvia and Russia was predicated on faith. He set sail, not in the steerage, but set sail for Riga. And as he returned to his homeland, stepping off the boat, there were Russian police there to arrest him. The police said, Everyone your age must serve in the army for five years. You have not served your time in the military. Therefore, you're under arrest. And uh, William reached into his pocket and pulled out his uh, uh, English Baptist ordination papers. And inexplicably, those police were bedazzled by it and said, Oh, okay. And they didn't arrest him. Eventually, he traveled to St. Petersburg, where there wasn't a single Baptist church. But soon he was meeting with 300 students, giving to them the word of God. And I'm condensing a whole lot of material here. Shortly after that, Russian aristocrats 
started coming to hear him preach. The rich people in St. Petersburg, and that's where all the rich were at that point in time. The, the, the people of power were coming to hear this, this boy preach this really radical doctrine that they never heard in the Orthodox Church. And some of these people were being saved. And with those connections, Fettler was eventually saved from death in Siberia as things quickly deteriorated. By faith, Fettler began to rent larger and larger auditoria. After two years, he was renting 12 sites at the same time. And he would preach to a thousand in this building and then run to another building where there were 500 waiting to hear him preach. And then to another third meeting that evening where there were people praying for the earlier meetings. Twelve different meeting places. His congregations were not registered with the government and as such were illegal and vulnerable. But by faith, Fettler continued his work of evangelism, sacrificing himself in many ways, including just wearing himself out, going from place to place, preaching. He stepped out by faith once again and then proposed to his friends that they build an edifice for the largest evangelical church in the Russian Empire. They built a building. By 1911, it was completed. It would hold approximately 3,000 people. At that point, Fettler's faith directed him into the heart of Russian Orthodoxy, Moscow. And by the way, the gospel he preached was exactly the same as our own. He declared over and over again the utter sinfulness of man and the absolute sovereignty of God over salvation. Nothing but the perfect atoning sacrifice of Christ can meet the spiritual deadness of the human heart. He preached it the way we preach it. It was absolutely contrary to the so-called gospel of the Russian Orthodox Church. They hated him. But the Lord blessed the man's faith and his biblical doctrine and many souls. And I'm not going to give you a number. I'm not going to say 500. I'm not going to say 5,000. And it may have been more than that. Multitudes were saved. Multitudes. Back in St. Petersburg on the last Saturday of November 1914, Fedler was leading his church in prayer, pleading with God for his continued blessings, when the church's chief usher came in to tell him that there were police waiting to arrest him outside. They showed him a paper which read, By order of the military governor of St. Petersburg, Pastor Vasily Androvich, Fettler is to be immediately arrested and exiled to Siberia. But then the grace of God stepped in once again, and some of Fettler's 
more powerful friends convinced the government that it would be far better to have the pastor exiled out of the country than to keep him in. He left his beloved Russia, eventually coming to the United States, where he by faith continued to minister to Russian people. He was in Russia for less than 10 years, approximately 10 years. But because it was a ministry rooted in absolute trust in the power of God, the blessings fell almost overnight. And before the door closed, for another century, God saved several thousand people in Russia. Of course, we have no control over the length of the permanence of our ministries. And it's not our job to dictate to God what he's supposed to do. It's our job simply to believe the Lord and his promises and to build our ark according to the plans that God has laid out. It may be burned to the ground in less than a decade, which was essentially what happened in Riga and St. Petersburg and Moscow. It may flourish through a half dozen states and grow and grow and grow and grow, leaving a legacy that still survives as it was through Stearns and uh, Marshall. Or it may become a salvation station only for a small family, six souls. But when that work is carried out with an absolute trust in God and his promises, it will go down in God's record book as a great victory. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, prepared an ark by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. I believe that Noah is an example not only of salvation by faith, but service by faith as well. Amen. Please stand.